G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. The Bible reading this morning comes from Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadathar, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay the hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast puah, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadathar, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers were sent out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was 10 years ago when I went to Poland and I had the privilege and also the horror 
of visiting Auschwitz, home of the concentration camp, the prison camp, where more than a million Jews were systematically, clinically killed by the Nazis. It was a confronting day for me, something that perhaps most of us, if not everyone, has heard about through school, through pop culture, through just general history, but to actually be there in the room to see and smell and almost vicariously experience just even a glimpse of the horror that occurred there not even that long ago. Um, Two things in particular stood out to me. There was a room full of shoes that the prisoners had worn. And even more disturbing was this room full of hair, uh, women's hair that had been cut off uh, prior to the women being put through the chambers uh, I've been uh, rereading a book um, called Man's Search for Meaning that I actually bought uh, when I was in Auschwitz. It's written by a guy called Viktor Frankl, a, a psychiatrist from the 20th century, and he was a survivor of Auschwitz and, uh, and a survivor of the prison camps. And he describes this experience. He says, I shall never forget how I was roused one night by the groans of a fellow prisoner who threw himself in his sleep, obviously having a horrible nightmare. Since I'd always been especially sorry for people who'd suffered fearful dreams or deliria, I wanted to make sure that wanted to wake the poor man. Suddenly, I drew back the hand that was ready to shake him, frightened at the thing I was about to do. At that moment, I became intensely, intensely conscious of the fact that no dream, no matter how horrible, could be as bad as the reality of the camp which surrounded us and to which I was about to. To recall him. It was Adolf Hitler who orchestrated this systematic anti-Semitic genocide where six million Jews were brutally killed. And as we enter into this morning's passage, uh, we're going to see lots of parallels. We're going to see a man who likewise rose to power, likewise a man who had this brutal vengeance against the Jews. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for God's help um, as we enter into a confronting piece of Scripture. So why don't you join with me again as we seek the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we we come before you this morning with heavy hearts, uh, knowing that our world is hurting. Lord, I do pray that we would see, even in the darkness, that there is light. I pray, Father, that we will make sense of this world that we are in. And we pray, Lord, that we might see your plans and purposes unfolding. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we, as we uh, look at this confronting piece of God's word, um, we are, are going to be faced with a whole bunch of questions. Has God gone back on his promises? Is he a God worth trusting? And the big question that I want us to explore this morning, and I think our service has, has uh, set this up Perfectly. Um, not only is it a dark morning, we've sung songs about darkness. Uh, I didn't choose them, uh, but we're going to be looking at this question Where is God in the face of darkness? Where is God in the face of darkness? A question that no, ma- um, no doubt many of us in this room face. As I have prayed already that the horrors about going on around the world. Here in Australia, we, we do have you know, relative peace, a lot to be thankful for, and yet our nation is plagued also by darkness, whether it be domestic violence and abuse, racism, mental health pandemics that places 
us in one of the highest uh, rates of suicide in the world. And personally, I know many of us are going through our own darkness. Maybe right now we're feeling so overwhelmed that we can't even have, we don't even have capacity to even comprehend what is going on around the world. There's a war in our head, in our heart, or even in our home. Maybe this morning uh, we have been in a season of anxiety, of depression, of, of feeling downcast, or you're caring for someone who is. Maybe there's even guilt and shame. Things that you have done or have been done to you in your past or present that have been plaguing you. Where is God in all of this, you might be asking? Well, here's the big thing that I want us to see this morning. As we look in this book of Esther, which doesn't even directly mention God's name, here's the big thing. That even when we can't see God's hand, we can trust his plan. When we can't see God's hand, we can trust in his plan. Now keep your Bibles open to Esther chapter 3. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to bless you with, with one. We've got a bunch um, at the Connect team on our info desk outside. I was told last week we, we almost ran out of Bibles. We gave away a bunch last week, uh, which is a blessing. But I encourage you as well to, to bring your Bible to church. I've got Esther 3 and 4 sort of all on one bit. It's just helpful to kind of visually, um, tangibly connect with it, even in this slightly dark room. Um, so keep it open with me, and we're going to go to uh, Esther chapter 3. But to set the scene, God's people that had been promised by Abraham um, nearly 1,300 years prior that a people will come from Abraham, and they would be a great nation living in the promised land under God's blessing. But here we are, fast forward 1,300 years, God's people, yes, they are numerous, scattered across the Persian Empire, but they have no land they are living with, and it certainly does not feel like they are living under the good and gracious rule of God. And we saw there's this king, King Ahasuerus, or, or Xerxes, who's basically this drunken show-off idiot. You know, he, he, his wife doesn't do what he wants, which is basically parading around in front of his mates in skimpy clothing or less. And she doesn't say yes to that, and so he just casts her away and, and has this weird, perverted beauty contest, or worse, to see which woman will pleasure him to become the new queen. Now Esther, who is one of God's people, she is chosen to be a queen. And Mordecai, who's Esther's older cousin who had raised her like a father, um, he is hanging around outside the palace gates and he overhears this plot to assassinate this king, the king Xerxes. And he tells his cousin Esther and she, and she ends up helping save the king. Curtains closed, end of episode two. And we pick up this new episode today that Josh read for us. Now let's go uh, to Esther chapter three, verse one. Esther chapter three, verse one. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So we're introduced to a new character. We've already seen the king, we've seen Esther, we've seen Mordecai, and here is the fourth key player in the story of Esther, Haman. Now we, we, get, we see he gets a promotion. Uh, we're not quite sure what that promotion's about. Uh, maybe it was legitimate, but more likely he had, there was nepotism or he'd weaseled his way in and become a recipient, and a recipient of this incredible 
promotion that he was above all the official. He basically became second in command of all of Persia. He was kind of a, a big deal. Like you think Tay Tay, Taylor Swift's a big deal. Now, this guy, Haman, he was a big deal, right? But what else do we know about him that's important? As Zach said last week so helpfully, that the Bible, it does not waste words. The Bible does not waste words. Um, and we see this little clue, a big clue, in fact, of who he is. He is the Agagite. Agar, what? What are you talking about, Mike? The Agagite. Now, that this, this comes back to an old enemy that uh, the people of God had. Uh, it comes all the way back. Uh, we can trace it back. King Agag, who fought against King Saul, he was an, an Amalekite. Now, who are the Amalekites? Well, I've got a, um, a little diagram that I, I found um, which is helpful. It's a Jewish diagram, so it's got some Jewish names like Abraham, uh, which is Abraham. And you can see there um, where uh, Amalek, all the way down the bottom, uh, it says mortal enemy of God's people. Um, and you can see uh, he was actually the great uh, grandson of Abraham. Uh, he came from the so great great grandson of Abraham. He came from, from not Israel, not Jacob, but Esau. And ever since then, there had been conflict between God's people and the line of Agag, the line of Amalekite, where Haman is from. Um, and so, uh, the fact that he was an Agagite and Amalekite, uh, this is to tell us something. In fact, God had prophesied back in Exodus 17 that my people will always be at war against the Amalekites. And so, we know a little bit about Haman's story. Let's keep reading uh, verse 2. Um, and all the king's servants who are with him, so all the king's servants who are at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So what's going on? All the people, they're, they're, they're bowing down. This is what the king's commanded, to, to bow down to this guy, Haman. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a worship thing. Possibly it was. But, but back then, and even in some cultures today, you know, bowing down, a sign of respect. Um, so don't immediately jump to worship. But Mordecai, he conscientiously objects to bowing down. He refuses. Now, the king's servants, they ask him multiple times in verse 4, you know, verse 3, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you bowing down uh, to Haman? And verse 4, they spoke to him day after day. He wouldn't listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. The servants, they report back to their boss, Haman, and they say, he's not bowing down to you. We've asked him multiple times and all we can get out from him is that he's a Jew, that his sort of family backstory. If you remember from the last couple of weeks, Mordecai had told Esther to keep her Jewish identity secret. But here's Mordecai. He's revealing, in fact, that he is part of the people of God, the old enemy of the Agagites, the Amalekites. In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. It's the second time in our story that an act of defiance has led to fury. Remember back in Esther chapter 1, Vashti, she refused to parade around um, for the, in front of the king's mates. And the king, he became enraged and he overreacts and he sent this rule to shame her and as a warning to the other women across the empire. But Haman here, what happens? He, he goes about 100,000 steps 
further. Verse 6, it says, Haman, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, maybe, I don't think he did, but maybe Mordecai did the wrong thing. You know, maybe he was being a bit passive-aggressive, you know, holding on to this kind of family feud. Uh, I'm not quite sure that's the case, but even if it was, right, the punishment, it does not fit the crime. Look, it wasn't even enough for Haman to go and execute um, Haman, sorry, Haman to go and execute Mordecai, you know, to pour out his wrath on one man for his own sin. No, he wanted to destroy God's whole people for the sin of just one man. That sort of prick your ears a little bit, sound like someone else. Well, that's right. We'll get to Jesus a little bit later. He was one man who was destroyed for the sins of many. We'll come back to him. But Haman, he doesn't yet have the power to act So he schemes, he plots, like if you've seen a house of cards, he's like a Frank Underwood, desperate for political power, for revenge, for control. And he goes to the king, verse 8. He says, says, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be that a decree let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I personally I'll pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. He goes to the king with this vague danger. You know, there's this there's this people out there, I'm not even going to tell you their name. He manipulates the truth, he withholds information. There's a bunch of people out there that they look a bit different. Uh, they kind of have different rules and customs. You know what? We should probably just smite them all. Haman, he, he creates prejudice when there's none that exists. Church, we need to be wary when people don't tell us the whole truth, when they withhold facts, when they manipulate a situation for their own benefit. Haman even says, hey, I'll pay for it myself, which is a ridiculous amount, perhaps even close to a billion dollars worth of silver Now, this could be this big bluff that Haman has. He doesn't have the money. Or perhaps it might be this power play that maybe if I go and and actually plunder the Jews, I can actually pay back what I said. Or maybe um, he's just kind of relying on on stroking the ego of of the king. And that's exactly what happens. If you have a look at the king's response, he says, you know, remember, he's not a great leader, right? You know, decision-making is not his forte. It's kind of like... You know, a couple of CEOs you know, offering who's going to pay dinner. The king's like, look, I agree. I'll just shout it all for yourself in verse 10. And what does he do? He takes his ring off, his signet ring, and he gives it to Haman. What's this ring? Well, this ring is like you know, from, the, from movies uh, like, 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 um, like we see in Thanos. We see Harry Potter, Voldemort, kind of the stones, uh, like Frank Underwood becoming vice president or when Hitler is made chancellor. This, this is the sign of real power, real authority is passed from one person to another. And as we read this, if we're thinking where the original readers, the people of, of God pre-Christ, our hearts, they should skip a beer. This is darkness. This is evil. And it's more than just a physical war. This is the 
enemy of the Jews, the enemy of God's people. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19, we see six things that God hates. In fact, there's even seven there. Um, Haughty eyes, which means proud, arrogant, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord among brothers. That's the epitome of what it means to be opposed to God. This is what God hates. Amen. He ticks all of those boxes. The epitome of evil. We've seen this devious designer. Secondly, we're going to go to the dark day. Where is God in this darkness? We've met Haman, uh, but now we see the events unfold that are building up towards this dark day. If you have, come with me to verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. An edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the same so written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with an instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued and as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And I think this is the most chilling bit of all. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So what's happened? Well, the king, he's weak-willed. He's agreed to Haman's request, and he's written into it sort of constitutionally so that it cannot be revoked. From the capital, Susa was sent out to the whole empire. That judgment day is coming. Men, women, and children will be destroyed. The whole race, the whole people of God will be destroyed by genocide. It's the ultimate act of anti-Semitic dark evil. And as I sat down to drink again, I just couldn't um, help but thinking about House of Cards when, um, when Frank and Claire Underwood, they're, they're just kind of sitting down, having a smoke, having a drink in their balcony window when America is just going into chaos. So this dark day, it is coming. Um, sorry, I'm having issues with my iPad. Apologies. Um, We see this dark day, um, and the whole city is entering into chaos. There we go. Um, So throughout history, though, if we take a step back, Jews had they've been facing genocide. Really, if you go all the way back to Egypt, remember um, in Exodus, remember God's people. They were facing infanticide. Pharaoh he was drowning all the baby boys in the Nile. Under the Romans, uh, we see um, perhaps even up to a million Jews were killed uh, after uh, the destruction of the temple. Of course, we can fast forward. There's many more accounts of evil, um, genocidic um, anti-Semitism. But if, you, if we cast our mind back to Hitler and the Holocaust last century. And right now, 
um, Hamas on October 7 last year. There was real evil, opposing forces from the Jews. And I want to suggest it's more than just a physical thing. The devil is described as a liar, as a murderer. He's come to destroy and to kill. Contrast to Jesus, who's come to bring life and life to the full. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into the whole Israel-Hamas conflict. As I said, I believe there is something spiritual going on at work there. It's complicated, though. It's messy. And, of course, there is evil. There is horror. There is sin on both sides. And so can I encourage us, church, to be a people of prayer, to be interceding for our brothers and sisters, but also for what is going on across the world. And, church, our hope, though, is not in the physical restoration of Israel. Our hope as Christians is in the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, where God will wipe away every tear from all our eyes, where there'll be no more suffering, no more pain, no more war, no more injustice. And Christians today, though, as the people of God, we are facing evil forces. I read this week that estimated 300,000 Christians get martyred, killed every year. There is darkness. There is regimes that, that continue against the people of God. Now, back in Esther, this dark day of destruction, it's coming. And yet, God is still at work. The words of the psalmist David in Psalm 23, when he says, even as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he knows that his God is still there with him. Notice in chapter 3, as Josh read and as we read again, perhaps you might have picked up there are some dates. As I said, no words are wasted. Come back with me to verse 7. It says, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, that's not a, a car company, but that's just a month in the Persian calendar. Uh, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is to cast lots before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. What's happening? Uh, well, uh, they're casting lots, rolling dice. This thing called Pur, which is where we get the Jewish festival. They still celebrate today, Purim, which is where the book of, of Esther is, is read. And in fact, um, as I said, when they, when they read this book of Esther, do you know what they do when, they, when Haman's name is mentioned? They, they boo him. Can we just get a boo for Haman? Boo. There we go. You guys are good at booing. Well done. Uh, now, we won't, we won't keep booing for the rest of, uh, of, of this morning, but, uh, but that's, that's kind of what happened back then. But you know, they would roll the dice, and what they're doing is, is they're picking this date of destruction of the Jews. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that God is even sovereign over the dice. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Nothing happens by accident. Even when people gamble, God is still sovereign over that. Even when we can't see God's hand, we can still see, trust his plan. So what happened? It's the first month. They're rolling the dice. Is, you know, is it going to be next month? Is it going to be two months' time, three months' time? The dice rolls on the 12th month, which means it's the, most, the maximum amount of time between, net, between the events then and the destruction or D-Day, if you like. Maximum amount of time for God to work his sovereign plans. But also, uh, God is sovereign in verse 13. In verse 13 we, re we see that the exact date of destruction is the 13th of the month of Adar. Now, that might not mean too much, much to us today, but that's actually the night before Passover, Passover Eve. 
Passover, if you remember, Passover, this great day of restoration, of redemption for the people of God, where they were spared from the judgment of Egypt. But the the angel of death would pass over uh, the people of God, and they were free to enter into the promised land. The Passover was a great day of of celebration, of feasting, of, of giving thanks to God. And of course, our Lord and Savior, he uh, suffered, he was crucified during the Passover week as God's judgment passed over us and fell on his shoulders. Even in the darkness here for the people of God in Esther's time, there is hope. Could somehow God orchestrate his plans and purposes to save his people? We've seen firstly a devious designer in Haman. The dark day is coming and finally a desperate deliverance. How will the people of God respond? Well, let's go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learnt all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai, he rips his clothes in anguish. This dark day is coming, this day of judgment. I'm sure Mordecai personally is feeling his own personal responsibility and guilt to this situation. The people are going to be destroyed because of him. He was, though he was standing up for what he was convinced was right, Haman's wrath, his anger had been poured out on the whole nation for his sin, his transgression. Esther, she hears the news that Mordecai is, 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 is grieving and she's deeply distressed. And at first, she, she doesn't quite get it. She goes and sends him some new clothes. He refused them. But his cousin Esther, she, she's in a high place. And, and Haman realizes that maybe he's got a way out here. Maybe there's an opportunity for deliverance. And there's this guy, Haltak, who's kind of like a, a carrier pigeon going back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. Uh, we, see, uh, we see these messages um, showing how desperate the situation is. Let me read from verse 6. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact, even the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And so what happens? Well, um, uh, Hatak went and he told Esther, verse 9, what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hatak and she commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the inside of the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds the golden scepter out, that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. So, Esther, so Mordecai, he's pleading because he knows there needs to be a mediator. He knows he needs to send someone to turn away the wrath of the judgment of the kingdom. But Esther, she hears the message and she responds. She said, no, it can't be me. 
Uh, because you know what? Like, if I go to the king, if I go on my own and face the king, I'm going to be under his judgment. You can't just freely enter into the king of kings' presence and expect to live. What else? And there's some hint that maybe some tension in their marriage. Um, he hasn't even seen her, him for 30 days. Mordecai, though, he's desperate. And what does he do? He challenges Esther, verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Esther, you're a Jew too. Like I know you've kept it under wraps so far. It's going to come out and you're going to die, he says. For, for as 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. For you, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai, he's insistent. Her life, his life, their lives are at stake, but he confronts her. Likely, she's an only child, an orphan, um, and she even talks about her lineage. It's going to be wiped out, and that's a massive thing uh, for the people of, for anyone but the people of that day. This young girl, her life and her lineage are to be wiped out. He confronts her and says, you need to risk it all. Mordecai, why? He, he trusts in God's salvation plans. He says that even if you don't do this, I know that actually deliverance will come from another place. I know that God will preserve his people. I trust the promises that have been given to my forefathers, to Abraham, that God's people are to rule, to be a light to the nations, that salvation is coming. Christopher Ash says that Mordecai, in a real sense, is preaching the gospel to Esther. God's salvation will come. Now, Mordecai, he doesn't know the whole story. He doesn't know, like we do, how things will unfold. But he has confidence in what he can sense of the gospel, confidence in God. Even when he couldn't see God's hand, he trusted in his plan. So how will Esther will respond to this challenge from her cousin? Will she stand up to the king? Will she risk it all? Keep reading verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther, she has a conviction, a change of heart and says, Yes, I too trust in God's plan. She says, I will even give up my cross, my my crown, sorry, my crown, my life, um, my power for the sake of my people. I'm going to lay down my life for the salvation of my people. That sounds like someone else. Esther even calls the people to fast. Now in the Bible, fasting is connecting with prayer. It's, uh, it's, it's a time where we really seek the Lord. We, we deny our physical uh, things, our food, so that we can uh, be reminded that we need to be reliant on God's provision alone. And so essentially, fasting here means praying as well, seeking the Lord of this. She, the Lord of this. She's about to have this crucial conversation, this crucial encounter with the King of Kings. 
Her life, the life of the, the people, the kingdoms at stake, please, for three days, seek the Lord, intercede on my behalf. The king is pretty erratic. You know, we've seen how he treats women who sort of don't toe the party line before. She steps out in faith, and we fade to black. Curtains closed. End of episode. What will happen? How will the king respond? Well, you're going to have to come back next week to find out what happened. Or you can read ahead, I guess, as well. <laughs> but this question we asked at the start, where is God in the face of darkness? When we don't see his hand, we can still trust in his plan. As I, as I wrap up and invite the band to come back up, let's just, just make a couple of comments, a couple of points of application. In the darkness, seek the Lord. In the darkness, seek the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Like Esther, like Mordecai, in the darkness where it seems like there is no hope, they sought the Lord. We too must seek him in our own darkness. Secondly, in the darkness, let your light shine. Church, where is God calling us? Where is God calling you in a time such as this? Mordecai, he broke a rule. He stood up to Haman. Esther, she had a rule that she broke. Now, maybe in your life there's a rule that you might break. Like a social convention. We can't talk about Jesus at work or, or the pub or you know, the sideline of our kids' sport. It's too risky. Church, let's be a people that takes gospel-centered risk. Not every risk, but a gospel-centered risk to make Jesus known. I'm encouraged by uh, LA elders, uh, by Michael, who were just you know, sharing how he regularly shares the gospel with his staff. He's bring them, brought them to things like God on Tap and even to patients at time, entering into risk of losing business. By Grant, you know, challenging one of his clients to read the Gospel of John. By Bron, who invited a cleaner up to, um, to the, the, her Gospel community. By Josh Grice, who got up to read uh, the Bible before, giving up weekends to teach and encourage and train leaders to tell kids and, and high schoolers about Jesus. I heard last week um, a young girl at church, a uni student, and how she's going up to people and sharing with them, asking them, engaging with them about Jesus. You know, we've heard before Richard and Jackie Watson at the park entering, meeting this new family and sharing the gospel with him. I'm encouraged by someone who was, so with them, I'm encouraged by someone who was recently challenged to break up with their girlfriend who wasn't trusting in Jesus. Just a few days after she, that he introduced her to their family. And he did. And he says he feels good about it. He feels convicted and challenged, even though his ex just does not get it at all. I'm encouraged by teenagers who last week got up and just shared, even just getting up as a teenager in front of a couple hundred people. That's a big deal. Church, let's be using our platform. Whatever, however small, however large that is, for the sake of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. What opportunities has God given you for a time like this? You know, we need to figure this out together. We need to encourage and celebrate and wrestle and lament and seek the Lord. But finally, in the darkness, there is hope. You know, 500 years after Esther, 
another Passover occurs and Jesus would face a different kingdom, a different authority that he would face. And instead of saying, if I perish, I perish, he knew he was going to perish. He said, I must suffer many things, be tortured and give my life up. But whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. On the cross, we see the most evil, the most dark, the most unjust act in human history. Murder of the only man who was ever truly innocent, the Son of God. And yet God used this act of evil for his plans, his purposes, his glory. Where is God in the darkness? You know, maybe we actually won't see how all these plans and purposes unfold. Maybe it won't make sense of us this side of eternity. Maybe we won't see how his plan is unfolding. But if we take a step back, we know that he is good. We know that he's working all things for his good and glory, for our good and his glory. And we know that the restoration, the new Israel is coming, where we will be with our Father, be with all of God's people in a land of peace, a land of shalom, in a land of perfect harmony with him and our world forever. He has a plan even when we can't see his hand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning confronted, grieved by the brokenness that is going on in our hearts with our brothers and sisters and across the world. Lord, we're wrestling with even the idea of how can you be good in the midst of all this. But Lord, as we see your word, help us to see things not through the world's eyes, but through your cross-shaped eyes. Help us to see that even through evil, you can bring about good and your glory. Help us to be a people of God that wrestle with you, wrestle together, and see your plans and purposes are unfolding that you are bringing light into our dark world and you're restoring all things for your glory. And one day, every knee will bow before you, Jesus. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.